Morning, everybody. All right. I'm going to start out this morning. Just wanted to uh, to share a memory I was thinking through this week. I'm a dad of uh, of three kids. Many of you know, two girls and a boy. And I remember when the girls were really um, quite small, maybe two and four years old, something like that. Their grandparents took them on a big uh, vacation, took them on a big trip, something like that, to Florida. Took them to Disney World for the first time. Some of you have walked through this. You remember those days of Disney World, that kind of thing. Well, this sort of solidified the princess era in our home, which lasted for years and years. I'm not sure we've ever fully recovered from that. And as well, uh, it also launches into this era where our oldest uh, refused to wear anything but dresses for several years, uh, made us watch all the Disney movies that there were, all this kind of thing. And the thing is, our girls loved those movies in that era. This is, this is them in that era. Isn't that great? Oh, they're so cute. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, in that era, uh, I mean, they just wanted to watch those Disney princess movies over and over and over. And have, if you guys have, I'm, pretty much all of us have seen them probably, but there's some scary characters in those things. You know what I'm talking about? Like the evil villains and stuff are like, eh. And so we, either Tina or I would have to sit through them again and again and again with them to fast forward through some of the scary parts so it wouldn't give them nightmares and that kind of stuff. Suffice it to say, I don't think I ever need to watch one of those movies again. I've seen them hundreds of times. But I have to admit, though, there's something pretty magical, pretty spectacular and appealing about those movies, right? I mean, we've, we've all seen them. We all know them. Cinderella and Snow White and Prince Charming and all these characters and on and on. The basic plot of these stories is pretty much the same. Uh, you go through, uh, and it, the, the story always begins with a stunningly beautiful uh, young woman, right? And is moves through a series of events uh, and they end up meeting a very strong and handsome and uh, brave young prince. Always happens the same, right? There's some sort of conflict in there where they are torn apart or kept apart and it kind of depends which era of movies you're watching. But the older ones, uh, the young prince would always make a way and would come and rescue, right? The damsel in distress, they kind of flipped somewhere maybe in the 80s or 90s. And oftentimes the women are doing the rescuing these days. But, right, and all of a sudden they they reunited, they fight all kinds of adversity. And then you get to the end of the story and they live, what does it say? They live happily ever after, right? They live happily ever after. Well, happily ever after in these stories, the implications, they live long, happy, bliss-filled lives together with no worries, no concerns, no regrets, no complaints or problems, right? Guess all are familiar with these stories. But the problem is that fairy tales are not for real, are they? I would love to see like Cinderella the sequel, like the next decade, right? Because they get married and they live happily ever after. But I kind of want to see the, the, the movie of, you know, them living together maybe five years later or 10 years later, something like that with a little bit more reality sort of thrown into the picture. You know, Cinderella walks into the bathroom and finds the uh, toothpaste cap is missing. There's, there's toothpaste squirted all over. She walks in the bathroom, discovers there's towels and clothes, underwear, and stinky socks on the floor. Uh, maybe uh, Prince Charming left the toilet seat up and she has had enough. You know what I'm saying? Like she walks in the other room and she's, she's ready to give him a piece of mind. She's thinking to herself, what have I done? When I got married, I thought I, was, I, was, I thought I was done picking up after my stepsisters, but this is way worse, right? I'm married. To, I chose this. What was I thinking? And so she goes in to give Prince Charming a piece of her mind. She walks in the bedroom and says, 
hey, why don't you pick up after yourself? You're kind of a slob here, right? Like, it's a mess in there. And he sort of rolls over, wipes the crusties out of, her, out of, his, out of his eyes, looks up at her. Her hair is a mess. She's got morning breath. She hasn't shaved her legs or her pits in a couple weeks. And she's nagging him. And he's thinking to himself, what in the world did I get myself into? This is not the magical princess that I married, right? What is going on? Happily ever after does not always fully describe the ups and downs of relationships, does it? I ran across an article this week uh, from an Australian uh, research group that's been studying the most, what they find, what they would say is the most interesting Google searches on the internet that happen on a monthly basis. And here's some of what they found. I thought these were, these were great. There's more than 40,000 people a month that search, why did I get married in the first place, right? 9,900 search for how to mend a broken heart. 5,400 a month uh, search for how to have an affair, these last couple I thought were interesting uh, on our topic. 1,900 <laughs> search for how to get away with murder and 1,000 how to hide a dead body. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of uh, uh, Billy Graham's wife who had said at one point, I've never ever considered divorce. Murder maybe, but not divorce, she said, right? <laughs> how do you hide a dead body? There's 1,000 people a month searching for that. I'm just saying it's kind of weird. Anyway... <laughs> Anyway, I read those stats and I think to myself, man, the honeymoon is over for a lot of couples, isn't it? People get together, they move in together, they get married or whatever, and one year or three years or five years or ten years later, they think, what have I done? Who have I married? What have I done? This is not the fairy tale that I signed up for. I thought he was my prince. I thought she was my beautiful princess. But the magic is over. We are on week number uh, four of a series that we're doing here at Ignite called Once Upon a Time, Myths About Dating, Sex, and Happily Ever After. And this series is really all about relationships in general, the myths that thwart us in God's wisdom and truth on how relationships work best. Today we're going to talk about the myth that happy couples don't fight, <laughs> right? It's simply not true, and I think all of us probably know this to some degree, and yet we are often surprised when conflict and fighting starts happening in our marriage again and again and again. And as, as that heats up uh, enough, we start wondering, what have I done? This isn't what I signed up for. Why is she always nagging? Why is she always picking on me? Why, he, why is he so quick to get angry? Why is he so explosive sometimes in his anger? It leads to questions. People start thinking, man, what do I do? What have I done? What kind of Franken marriage is this, right? In studies that examine why people divorce, inability to resolve conflict or too much fighting show up near the top of pretty much all of them. And so today I want us to look into this whole issue of fighting in relationships, of conflict in relationships, even anger, and then God's wisdom for us on the topic. So quick question for you today so I don't feel quite so guilty, <laughs> uh, but quick question. How many of us have ever had a fight with a spouse, a boyfriend, girlfriend, significant other, even friend in general? Ever had a fight? Yes, yeah, some of you are lying, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, how about this one? How many of you have ever had a fight with somebody like that over something really insignificant and stupid? Yeah, some of you are still lying, right? I think all of us have. I was thinking this week and going back over some of, in particular, the first fights uh, that Tina and I had after we were married, 
And some of them I'm so embarrassed by, right? Some of them were over the most insignificant kind of things. And you think, you look back and think, what in the world was I thinking? We'd, we had arguments and disagreements, sometimes fights, over how many times a week you should go grocery shopping. Tina came from a home where, uh, where they w- they'd go to the grocery store pretty much every day and just get what you needed for the day. And uh, I was more in line with, you know, God's position on the subject that you should go more like once a week. <laughs> right? Right? We, so we'd fight about stupid things, like how often to go. We fought over meals, right? When I was a bachelor living by myself, I would grill myself up a burger or a steak or a brat or something, and that was a meal. Tina, on the other hand, thought that, Man, you're supposed to have, like, fruits and vegetables. You call that a meal? Like, that's not a meal. And we'd kind of have some disagreement and some tension over something stupid like that. Uh, I'll never forget our first major uh, fight. This was kind of gone down in infamy in our family, sheer family lore about, uh, about probably the most significant fight in our history. We were newlyweds. We just, for our wedding, we'd been given some money, and we thought, you know what, uh, we're going to go buy a new couch. I don't know why, but for some reason, Tina thought the 1960s or 70s golden, uh, like kind of velour couch that had been given to us because nobody else wanted it, she didn't think that was appropriate for, <laughs> for our home. That wasn't really what she was dreaming of. And so, no, we'd made the decision to go out and buy a new couch. And I thought, well, that sounds fun. We've got money. We've got a budget. We'll go to the store. We'll buy something. We'll come home. What will it take, 15 minutes? I mean, that, how long is that going to take? It couldn't be that. So, so we went. And we're going, we're looking at every, right, every couch on the planet. I mean, we were there for hours, hours. And the longer we're there, I did not want to be there that much in the first place. And I don't really like shopping that much in the first place. So the longer this goes, the higher my blood pressure is going. We can't agree on anything. I'm like, that's stupid. She's like, I hate that. You know, back in, I mean, we're just like, this is never going to work. It's going up. And so we went not, not one day, but we, it spilled into a second day. Both days, we had epic sort of fights, right? I mean, we were just angry. I mean, I was like, we're trying not to to throw a scene in the furniture store, but I'm like, this is nuts. Like, who takes this long buying a couch, right? I don't don't even care. I just want to sit down. Well, it doesn't matter. And uh, I mean, we're just, it's going higher and higher to the point where, I mean, we're driving back. It's like two hours to the furniture store from where we lived because we went into the Chicago suburbs. It drove forever. So it's silent the whole way home. (laughs) I mean, we're all grouchy and grumpy. Even Tina is grumpy. I mean, we're, we're, it lasted until uh, we got home. We were still sort of throwing stuff around, pots and pans, and, you know, I mean, doing stuff as we're going about our stuff for the evening. Uh, I mean, came time for bed. We were still at it. And finally, Tina, you know, being the more godly one of the two of us, you know, came to me on, on <laughs> came to me on her hands and knees, um, you know, crawling to me, just desiring for us to be restored. And she said, get out from under the bed, you coward, and fight like a man. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. That's not really like, like her at all. <laughs> Here's what I want us to do this morning. I want to go all the way back to the beginning of God's book, to, uh, to Genesis chapter 2. I want to read and kind of set up the, the day with the passage that's really the creation of relationship, the creation of marriage, of couples, of, of that kind of thing, and, and use that as sort of a context or a picture for what it is that God really desires for us, right? What, what his dream is, even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of the messy stuff of marriage, the messy stuff of relationship, the messy stuff of life, 
And so we're going to use that kind of uh, picture as the context, and we're going to jump in to uh, two verses in the book of James that are going to really give us the nitty-gritty specifics on what that looks like lived out. So you with me? That's where we're going. Uh, we're going to jump in Genesis 2, 18 through 24, I should mention. I mean, there's notes in the uh, Ignite Church app. You can follow along. It's got the scriptures and the notes and stuff in there. You can use that if you want. Um, you can follow along in version if you've got that, or you can follow along up on the screens. Yeah, well, there's, well, there's that. I mean, <laughs> paper, you may have heard of it. You can follow along there as well. All right, Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Everybody's a comedian. <laughs> Says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each of these living creatures, that was, that was its name. So the man uh, gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she, came, uh, she was taken out of a man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. So here, I just want to take kind of the big picture out of that and just say this is God's picture. This is God's design for relationship, for marriage. It's never simply been, uh, you know, his, his dream for relationships has never been divorce avoidance. It's never been just keeping the peace. It's never been enduring relationship with one another. It's not even been about coexisting. God's dream for relationships and for marriage is an incredible picture of unity. He says it's it's not good for them to be alone. I want them to be together and not just two people coexisting. I want them to become one. And it's a picture of more than just the physical parts of relationship between a husband and a wife, right? It's, it's about a mingling of souls. No longer two, but one. It's a picture of unity and intimacy, a picture of staying together, a promise to pursue oneness all the days of your life. It's a picture of pursuing one another to work through our issues and to come out the other side together, right, as one couple. A promise to celebrate great joys with each other, a promise to be a companion together, a promise to grow together, to confront one another when necessary, to believe in each other, to encourage one another, to celebrate and enjoy life together. It's a picture of oneness, and that's God's design for relationships, and especially in his picture for marriage whole idea of oneness. There's a guy by the name of Aaron Beck who's done a ton of writing and research on marriage and he talks about two different ways in which marriages can be damaged and this is true for all relationships in general but he talks about, he says, you know, people can take either big exits or they can take what he calls little exits. Big exits, he would say, are highly dramatic, very visible, often permanent ways that you leave a marriage, right? Divorce is probably the most obvious one. It's an example of a big exit. Other big exits could be, you know, uh, leaving and never coming back, moving and not leaving a forwarding address, joining the FBI witness protection program, right? That might be a hint that there's an exit happening, yeah, right? I mean, big exits, they're dramatic. They're, they're uh, I mean, they're significant. They're, they're relationship ending or changing. 
in significant ways. Little exits, he says, are much more subtle and quiet, underground, barely noticeable ways in which you and I move away from oneness uh, all the time. They're little things. Could be like holding a grudge. Could be like the silent treatment. Could be nitpicking or grumbling. Could be eye-rolling or (sighs) sighing, right? Little things that we do that pick, that move us away from unity, that move us away from oneness, that damage the relationship in, a, in little tiny ways every day. He says little exits are, uh, what, when you take a little exit, he says, the result is that you find yourself feeling a little bit more distant, a little bit more separate from the other person, a little bit more disengaged, a little bit more hurt or put off or fed up with. And he says, and all day long, in dozens of ways, by the words that we speak, by the tones of our voices, by our body language, by our activities, we are constantly either building oneness, we're building unity, or we are eroding it. It's going on all the time. But imagine if there was something better than just big dramatic exits or little nitpicking uh, ways that we move away from each other. What if God had something better? What if you and I learn to stay in relationships? If we learn to work through anger and conflict in a way that does not destroy trust, in a way that doesn't erode oneness, in a way in which there is not a winner and a loser in the relationship, but one that protects the unity, that protects God's design and his dream for what relationship was meant to be. James 1, 19 and 20 has three significant pieces of wisdom on how to uh, survive conflict and how to thrive in relationships. And I just want us to walk through it today to get some real specific application. And then I'll just encourage you to, to do what it says, to put it into practice in our marriages, in our relationships, um, whether it's dating or otherwise. Fair enough? So James 1, 19 and 20, uh, I just want us to read through it and then I'm just going to unpack it says this my dear brothers and sisters take note of this everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not uh, produce the righteousness that God desires that's it two verses so three keys to surviving conflict and thriving in marriage he says listen to this he says listen carefully it's the first one be quick to listen guard your words be slow to speak and handle anger rightly or righteously, which is slow to become angry because it doesn't lead to the righteous life that God desires. So we're just going to look at those three things. Listen carefully. Uh, I think this is a great one. Be quick to listen. Listen carefully. A survey I read this week reports that you and I normally hear around 20% of what's communicated. We normally hear about 20% of what's communicated. We normally hear about 20% of what's communicated. 20% of what's communicated. 20% of what's communicated. You got it? (laughs) By now you should have it. One in five, right? We hear about, we hear 20% is all of what's communicated to us. And I, I, I actually, as I read that, I thought in a day of smartphones and iPads and Netflix, I bet it's even lower. I bet it's, I bet it's dropping rather than rising. A study was done at the University of Alabama that asked wives and husbands to list their most common complaints that they had with their spouses. The number one for women, what do you think? Bing, right? My husband doesn't listen to me. I bet we've never heard that before. Have you ever heard that before in our culture? In our society? I'm sure not you, but maybe in somebody else's marriage or relationship that they felt unheard, 
Like, like their spouse wasn't listening to them? Absolutely. To which their husbands replied, huh? Right? What? I didn't, didn't hear you. The average working couple I read this week spends four minutes alone in meaningful conversation today. Imagine that. Four minutes a day. Throw in there the fa- and factor in that they hear about 20% of what's shared. Man, think of that. It's craziness. Friends, you will not develop oneness in any relationship in four minutes a day. You can't microwave marriage. You can't microwave relationships and expect to have closeness with your significant other. It takes time to understand each other's innermost world. You've got to listen. You've got to put down your smartphones, turn off the turn TVs, and turn towards one another to listen. I mean, this is a biggie for us. Do you to significantly improve your relationships? Spend time being a focused listener with one another, especially when tensions are high. Make eye contact. Turn off your devices and TVs and iPads and phones and listen not just to the words that are getting spoken, but to the heart that's behind it. Be quick to listen, God says. It's a key to relationship. Listen not just with your heads, but with your heart as well. It's a key to relationship. There's a reason God gave us two ears and only one mouth, right? We should be listening way more than we should be talking, especially when we're in conflict. But what happens is we get angry, and the opposite happens, doesn't it? I don't care what you're saying. Let me tell you what you need to hear. I'll tell you what's wrong. It's you, right? You're the problem, right? Suddenly it becomes about me winning and me expressing my opinion instead of listening and hearing what you have to say. Proverbs 18.2 describes this kind of thing really accurately. Fools, says people that do this, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but simply delight in airing their own opinions. Who here has ever been a fool? That would be me, right? That'd be all of us, I think. A fool is like, I don't really care what you're saying, but I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking. And that's often what we do in fights. We're not trying to understand the other person. We're, we're not uh, wanting for them to feel heard. We just want to be heard. We want to make our point. We want to defend ourselves. We want to win. And God says, that's just foolish. It's foolishness. It will destroy. It will erode trust. It will move you away from oneness. Instead, he says, listen carefully. Listen carefully. When we train church planting coaches, uh, which people that will walk alongside and mentor uh, church planters, when we train those kind of people, uh, there's a whole section that we do, and we call it empathetic listening versus pathetic listening. <laughs> and pathetic listening is what we're talking about. That's the, that's the way a fool listens, right? I don't, I don't really care. The whole time somebody else is talking, they're just thinking about what they're going to say, right? Because it's, what, it's about me. It's about what I have to impart on you. I don't really care what you're saying or thinking. I know all, and so I will, I will therefore bless you with wisdom and that kind of thing. Pathetic listening, empathetic listening is something that's totally different. Empathetic listening isn't about me, it's about them. It's about stopping, right? Stopping, turning towards them and engaging in conversation, listening, hearing, reflecting back what you hear them saying and empathizing with them. In re- I mean, this is stuff that marriage counselors teach 
people in premarital counseling and postmarital counseling all the time, right? And it's crazy. And it's something that many of us have heard before, but we don't do. <laughs> it's empathetic listening. Empathetic listening is, is uh, Prince Charming saying to Cinderella, wow, honey, what I hear you saying is that you get frustrated when you have to pick up my socks and underwear and the towels that are on the floor because you feel like you're doing, that you're carrying the load for all this, and I could see how that would be frustrating to you. You don't have to agree with them at that point. You don't, I mean, the, the solution is still the next step, right? But, but hearing them and responding and caring, like not, you can do that with a tone too, right? An attitude which negates everything that you just said. But that's, that's empathetic listening. And God says, you know what? Be quick to listen and slow to speak, which you... Would you clamp your mouth a little bit, especially in conflict, and instead turn towards the other person, listen to what's being said, reflect back, and care, right? Empathize in the midst of that. Man, I'll tell you what, especially for women, but this is true for all of us, I think, man, sometimes the problem isn't even the problem. We just want to be heard and understood. We want to know that our boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance or husband or wife or whoever, we just want to know that they hear us and that they care. Sometimes that's enough. When we really listen, it takes the power out of the fight. It allows us to communicate that we care enough to listen. And man, I'll tell you what, it's key to relationship. This is gold kind of stuff. This is like miracle grow for relationships. If we would stop listen, turn towards more than one out of every five sentences, more than four minutes a day. Stop, turn towards them, listen, and care. Man, I'm telling you what, this is gold. It will serve you, it will serve me so well if we would put this into practice. So listen carefully. Second one, guard your words faithfully. Be slow to speak, James says, right? Slow to speak, especially in conflict. Would you clamp your trap? Would you guard your words faithfully? I saw another study this week. I kind of saw a lot of them, but I saw another one that studied husbands and wives over a long period of time and looked for trends that studied them from the times they were newlyweds on through uh, for the next like 25 years. And uh, we looked for patterns. Of course, during that time, uh, some of those couples got divorced. Some of them stayed together, and they were looking for what are the trends, what are the things uh, that we can learn from couples that made it that were different with couples that didn't make it. In, the, in, in this particular study, the only thing they could find had to do with their words. Those that ended up breaking up, those that ended up getting divorced or moving out or whatever, were twice as likely to say words that were cutting, that were destructive, that, were, uh, that worked to destroy unity rather than build it twice as many times as those that stayed together. Man, our words matter. Let's do a couple of these uh, other verses from Proverbs. I think these kind of nail it. But Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruits. In Proverbs 12.18, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. This is so true, isn't it? Words are powerful, God says. They have the power to pierce and to cut and destroy like a sword, or they can build up and bring healing and life. They have the power of life and death. 
There are some of us here, the truth be told, that our words are destroying our relationships. They are doing so much damage. And we just need to stop it. We've got to stop tearing down our significant other. We've got to stop stabbing our spouses because we get angry and we just blast people. But rather than do this, we've got to learn to just stop it. We'll say horrendous kinds of things sometimes to our spouses, things that we would never, ever say to anybody else on the planet. And God says, man, guard your words faithfully. They have the power of life and death. I do enough um, talking with couples and do enough uh, marriage counseling and some pre-marriage counseling and that kind of stuff that there's some things that uh, I just have to say, there's some things that are just off limits when it comes to even fights, even in marriage or in relationships in general. And it's true. There's some things that you should never say. And I'll tell you what, you would think this is common sense. You would think everybody knows it's not true. I talk to people every week that are saying these things, and it does tremendous damage to relationships. It cuts like a sword. It divides. It does not bring unity, but it destroys and brings death. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna list a few if that's okay. You, you cool with this? There's a few things. There's some things you should never say because they're so destructive. If you are married, or even if you're not, but in anger, you should never say, ever say, I'm getting a divorce. I'm sorry I married you. I right you should never say that. You should never threaten to leave. That some of us use this as a tactic to gain power in the midst of an argument so that we can win against our spouse, our significant other. We gather up the power from that and we slice our partner and say, I'm, I wish I never married you. I'm getting a divorce. Can I just say, you should never say that. You know what God would say to that? Watch your words. Clamp your mouth. It's so destructive. Your words pierce like a sword. That will destroy things. It'll take years or maybe never be able to recover from. Second thing, I'll just say, never call names, right? We say sometimes horrible things like, you're stupid, you're ugly, you, right? I mean, we, we'll say, you're a whatever. We'll say horrible things things that will be seared into people's souls and hearts. So there's some things we should just never say. The third one, we should never say never or always <laughs> when we're in a fight, right? That's just not the time to, to have that conversation. You never do this or you always do that. Is that probably true? Probably not, right? That just does damage. There's no reason. These things destroy relationship. The tongue has the power of life and death. Don't kill your spouse. Don't kill your relationships. Don't kill your significant other. It will affect you both for years and years and years. Instead, guard your words faithfully. This is one step alone that I'm telling you what, you put this into practice. You learn to guard your lips. It would make a huge difference in your relationships. One more proverb. 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Is that true? Is that true? It's totally true. It's true. If you can guard your 
guard your words and instead be, be intentional, right? Use your words to build up. Use your words to encourage. Man, that can take the power out of the middle of a fight. It's possible. And this isn't just fairy tale stuff we're talking about. This is, this is stuff you can actually, with God's help, you can learn to do. You can put into practice. You can change your pattern. Let's be honest. There's some of us in the room, probably most of us in one way or another, that have uh, stepped over this line someplace where we have not guarded our words faithfully, where we have done damage to somebody else, where we have wounded, where we have made exits, we have destroyed trust, we've destroyed unity. And maybe today, maybe the takeaway for you, in addition to maybe changing the pattern for the future, maybe, maybe today you need to go home or go to that other person could be anybody could be somebody at work it could be a boyfriend girlfriend fiance husband wife whatever but maybe you need to go to them and say i'm sorry my words have wounded i have done damage i have eroded trust would you forgive me i'm telling you what those are words that bring life really those are words that will change a marriage and then start afresh third one will go on handle anger rightly handle anger rightly be slow to become angry God says because it doesn't bring about the righteous life the right life that God desires it it hurts it hinders relationship handle anger rightly there's a guy by the name of Dr. Gary Oliver that writes this he says the process of growing in an intimate relationship it will involve conflict Since many of us avoid conflict like the plague, we don't grow, we don't change, we don't get closer, and we don't experience intimacy. We stay stuck in the rut of mediocrity. It's true as well. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron, or it can, right? That's one metaphor that it uses. We can sharpen each other. I think think conflict, rightly understood, brings about Christ-likeness in us in greater and greater and greater and greater ways. I think marriage is part of God's design to make us more like Jesus if we handle it correctly, right? It can either, and I was thinking about that imagery of of iron sharpening iron. If If you think about the imagery of that, there's conflict, right? There's sparks when iron sharpens iron. There's noise, there's friction, there's heat that happens as a result. That's what conflict is like, and it can either sharpen us and make us more like Christ, or it can wound us and do damage. If we learn to handle anger rightly, we can listen. We can keep destructive anger at bay. We can guard our tongues and work through issues, build unity, make our marriages better. It's possible to be angry and not have it lead to destruction in our relationships. Ephesians talks about it this way. It says, in your anger, do not sin. It's possible to be angry and not sin. It's possible to be angry and not have it destroy in your anger, do not sin. Do not, hold, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Conflict and anger are normal parts of any relationship. Let me just say it again. Conflict is normal. Anger and conflict can even be constructive. To be, on a, to be honest, there's probably some of us here that are so conflict avoidant that we need to actually re-engage in conflict in our relationships. There's legitimate stuff going on that needs to be addressed. And you, that, that conflict or that, even that anger that you feel needs to, is, a, is a conduit to lead you to action. 
If you as a couple are handling money in a way that bothers you, in a way that seems like you're going to drive yourselves clean into the ground and pile up debt and debt and debt and debt and debt, and you're not going to be able to survive, and that bugs you, and the more this happens, the more your blood pressure is going up, that's not an excuse to say, explode, let her rip. That's not handling anger rightly, right? But that, there is something legitimate there, right? There's something, this, it's a way that God is speaking and saying, you know what, you need to, have a conversation about that. You need to change course. You need to do something about that kind of pattern in your life. If you're not spending enough time together as a couple and your relationship is suffering and it's bugging you, it's bothering you, if you're not feeling heard or loved or valued or understood, there's probably a conversation that needs to happen. They're not powered up, not explosive, but it needs to move you towards action. If there's differences about how you're parenting and you, and you have serious questions like, I feel like we're heading our kids in the wrong direction. It's a conversation that needs to happen. Don't power up. Don't blast somebody, but talk about it. Anger and explosive anger are two very different things. Anger is simply the response to things not being right in our world or our relationships. You know, if I see a two-year-old toddler that's getting beaten up by an abusive drunk of a father or a mother, would that make me angry? Heck yeah. Should it make me angry? Oh yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a nudge or a response perhaps even to get involved, to stand in the way, to protect, right? You can, it, sometimes anger drives us to protect. Conflict drives us to something better, to protect, to get involved, to take action. Not in a destructive way, but in a way that builds, and builds relationships and protects individuals. It could even be God nudging you to step in and protect somebody else. Step in and to make uh, some God-honoring change in your relationship. I was thinking this week, I mean, Jesus got angry. Jesus encountered conflict time and time and time again with one primary group. There was a group of religious leaders whose jobs you would think would be to help people find their way back to God, but instead they were getting in the way of people that needed Christ the most, that needed God the most. They were keeping them from being able to come back home to the Father, and it ticked Jesus off to the point where he confronted them. He would stand face to face, toe to toe with them, and say, you know what, what you're doing is wrong. You need to get out of the way and allow these people to come home to the Father. At one point, he flipped over some tables, didn't he? At one point, he, he stood toe-to-toe with them, yelled at them even a little bit. But it was confrontation. It was a healthy confrontation even. He handled anger uh, rightly. The sinless, perfect Son of God was angry but did not sin. He didn't go beat the crap out of somebody, right? He didn't uh, whatever but he addressed the situation. In relationships, there's oftentimes conflict. And it can either be healthy and build up or it can be destructive and tear down. But from these two passages, God has a couple of things to say about how to keep conflict and anger even on the healthy playing, playing field. The first one he says is this, be slow in, to become angry. Be slow to become angry. In other words, there are times, lots of times in relationship, lots of times, I mean, gazillions of times in marriage where we just need to learn to forgive and let stuff go, right? Where you're just, you just need to let it go. We could sing it, let it go, let it go. (laughs) 
All right, a married couple, a couple married for 15 years had an idea. They were having uh, more than usual kind of disagreements, and they wanted to make their marriage work a little bit better, so they agreed uh, on, on a plan that the wife had, actually. She said, you know what, for one month, let's have a little fault box, and any time that you do something that annoys me or I do something that annoys you, you we'll write it on this slip of paper, and we'll put it in the box, and, uh, and at the end of the month, we'll divide them up, and we'll both read through them and kind of help us understand uh, some things that we can do to, to make our marriage better. And so the husband agreed to it. And the, the wife was, was pretty diligent about this, right? I mean, she's like wet towel on the shower floor, right? She's like toothpaste cap left off. You put the toilet paper going over the top rather than a whatever. I don't know whatever the right way is, right? I mean, all, she was writing down all these kind of things, filling up the box. At the end of the month, they had dinner together. And at the end, they, uh, they gave each other the, uh, the, the pile, and the, the husband kind of went through those and was thoughtfully kind of thinking about what he could do, some actions that could be taken to make their marriage better. But uh, when the wife started going through hers, each one had the same phrase on it. They were all the exact same message as she opened her box and began to read, and the message was, I love you. And you know what? There's something, there's something true, something that lines up here with, with what makes marriages and relationships work. There are some things that are just not a big deal. Some things that for the sake of the relationship, that for the sake of unity, we just need to forgive. We just need to let go. We could nitpick. We could, right, we could sigh. We could eye roll. We could stomp around. We could do our thing because they didn't do exactly what we wanted them to do, but it will do damage. Those are little exits. Instead, there are tons of things that we just need to learn to forgive and to release and to let go. Don't be quick in becoming angry. Be slow, he says. In order for relationships to thrive, forgiveness has got to be on tap. It's got to permeate our relationships. It's not about what's fair. It's not about keeping score. In order for marriages to thrive and not just survive, we've got to learn to forgive one another completely, often, and freely. The other piece of wisdom that we find in this passage is don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I have to say, we, have, we had mentors when we were first married that challenged, actually before we were married, that challenged us to actually live that out. I mean, that's a uh, kind of frightening words. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. Is that not, like, who here would say, hey, let's, let's invite Satan in to wreak havoc in our marriages and our relationships, right? Nobody would say that, and yet, and yet we say that in, our, in the way we respond all the time. And so these mentors of ours said, you know what? Take it literally. Why not? I mean, this is what the Bible says. Why not take it literally? Literally don't go to sleep until you are resolved, as, at least as resolved as you can be, unless you, until forgiveness has been offered and extended. And so we haven't done this perfectly. There's been times when we, we haven't done this well, but I would say probably only a handful of times over the last 18 years have we gone to bed angry. Uh, we've, now I have to say, has this been easy? No, this, sometimes this means you stay up late, you lose sleep. Sometimes it means there's the game that you go to bed and there's the silent treatment going on and there's you know nostrils flaring and whatever else happens. Sometimes uh, in case you didn't get the sign from the, tr the silent treatment, one or the other of us will, uh, will sigh, <sighs> 
grab the covers and like flop over in an, in an opposite direction in bed, you know, kind of thing from the other one in case the silent treatment didn't let you know. They want you to know, I'm still mad over here. Right? We're still not unified, that kind of stuff. And yet, man, if there's something powerful about saying we are, we care enough that at some point before we go to sleep tonight, we will be resolved. And, and I'll tell you what, man, this is huge. There's, I mean, two words along these lines that make a, a big difference. And, and it could be that, um, that sleep deprivation finally gets to you and that serves as a motivator. And <laughs> it could be that uh, your heart softens. It could be that uh, maybe you gain a little perspective in the silence and realize that this is just stupid. But you say two words to each other, it makes a huge difference. I'm sorry. Now, does that mean you don't win? Yeah, but sometimes you not winning means you win as a couple, <laughs> means you win as a relationship, means you protect the unity, you move back towards one another. I'm sorry. I want you to say, I'm sorry. We need to get really good at saying that. <laughs> I'm serious all the time. I'm sorry. It should be something that comes out of our mouth all the time. Why? Because we screw up. We're stupid. We're selfish sometimes, right? We're self-centered. And grace, like that forgiveness, just needs to flow on, on tap, right? I'm sorry. And then the words, I forgive you. Those are words that move people back together. That's how you don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's how you don't give the devil a foothold. Saying, you know what? I'm sorry. I care too much about our marriage, about our relationship to let bitterness and anger and stuff build up. Would you forgive me for being an idiot and would you restore with me? Would you come back together and restore the unity between us? So those are the three things, right? Three keys to surviving conflict and thriving in relationships. Listen carefully, right? Empathetically even. Guard your words faithfully. Make sure your words are building up. There are some things you just don't say ever. And the third one is handle your anger rightly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil a foothold. Be slow to anger because anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. Handle anger rightly. I'll tell you what, friends, we put these things into practice. There is tremendous hope <laughs> for our relationships. There's tremendous hope for our marriages, really. This will make your marriage and your relationships better and better and better. It will line it up with God's plan for your life, and he will do cool stuff. You with me? Let's not just hear it today. Let's think about how we can put this into practice when we head home today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your wisdom, for your truth. Thank you, uh, thanks Jesus, for, uh, for your great love for us, for being the one who teaches us how to forgive, that teaches us how to love, that teaches us uh, how to do relationships even. And Father, I pray that you would, uh, as we go from here today, that you would help us to put these things into practice, that you would teach us in our relationships to become... Uh, people that can clamp our traps and be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Would you build up and bring greater levels of unity in our relationships? Would, would they honor you? Would they reflect your intention 
for thriving marriages. We need you, God. Can't do it on our own. Would you come and fill us and strengthen us and encourage us and teach us afresh this morning? Embolden us to be able to walk the path you've laid out before us. We need you. We want you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.